Well, good evening. It is great to see you all out this evening as we take an opportunity and spend a little more time in our study on Ecclesia, and that is the church, and digging into the wonderful truth that we have tonight of the distinctions between Israel and the church. And years ago, there was a book, years ago, it makes me sound like I'm super old, but uh, a few years back, it uh, doesn't help either, but uh, there was a book written that came out during the time where there was an error going on in the church, and there was a number of books being written on what was called the Emergent Church. The Emergent Church has changed names and changed a little bit of philosophies of its earlier tenets, but it's still there, but it's kind of waning in its influence. But there was a day that the Emergent Church was really rising to the forefront of young men being trained for ministry, writing books and being sent out into ministry as well, and churches following after this emergent movement. And there was a, uh, it really gave credence to a movement that we now know as the Restless and Reformed. Uh, That was what it kind of became, or at least a tenet of it became, the Restless and Reformed. And there began to be a significant shift, or at least evidence of a significant shift, that you and I are now in the minority, in the evangelical church. We used to be throughout the 80s and 90s and even into the 70s, 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s, we used to be the majority. If you were to be those in theological circles, you would say you would run across more, maybe not in this area recognized, but more evangelical Christians who called themselves dispensationalists and fewer that called themselves covenantalists. But that was the draw between the two, the line between the two that was drawn in the sand was dispensationalism and covenantalism. Now there's various factions of each of those, but it used to be that dispensationalists were in the majority. Then they began to move towards the minority as this restless and reformed group began to grow. In the midst of that, as the earlier vestiges of it began to take place, there was an author who can't spell his last name right. I don't know why. His name's Kevin DeYoung, and he can't spell it right. He spells it different than I do, so it's wrong, obviously. Um, But he wrote a book, Why I'm Not Emergent, But I Should Be. And the whole idea is really why he loves the church as it is found in the pages of Scripture. Now, he is a covenantalist. He is not on the dispensational side, but I've appreciated a lot of what Kevin DeYoung has written. And I uh, just pray that he stays out of theological conversations. Uh, he's good in his, his realm. Let's keep him there in that realm, and uh, we'll find blessing in that. But it does show that there's been a shift. And that shift is one that we want to recognize the importance of maintaining faithful and true doctrine as we study this very important topic of distinctions between Israel and the church. You see, covenantalists confuse these two issues. And we live in a very strong covenantal enclave of those who believe in this covenantal theory or covenantal ideas of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the church being Israel of the New Testament and Israel being the church of the Old Testament. If you hear anybody say that, you automatically know with that one phrase that they are covenantalists. That they say, ah, the church is nothing more than New Testament Israel. 
or that Israel is Old Testament church. Any, either one of those two phrases instantly categorizes them in a camp called covenantalists. We are not in that camp. We are passionately dispensationalists, and we will be that way. That is who we are. That is our makeup. That is our founding core elements of doctrine as well as practice. And so it is vitally important that we understand the distinctions between Israel and the church. And so that is where we're going to spend some time. And what we're going to do tonight is purely introduction. Do not walk away from here tonight and say, that was an exhaustive study on the distinctions between Israel and church, because it will not be. Uh, This is kind of a jumping off point, and we're going to build on it, uh, Lord willing, for at least one more Sunday in this series on Ecclesia. And if I sense the need, we're going to go a couple Sundays where we're going to build off of this and we begin to discuss the church and the present and the future as our topics that are coming up as we understand Ecclesia. But as we do so, we want to have an understanding of how those things are going to be changed by our theological presuppositions. If we are going to maintain a literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture, which we should, that is our earmark, uh, that is that we pick up the pages of Scripture and we read it for what it says. We understand figures of speech and we uh, recognize their importance. We understand culture and we recognize its importance so we don't have a wooden structure on literalism, but we nonetheless are literal. And we would boldly proclaim that we are also biblicists. We want Scripture to speak for itself. And so because of that, It does form what we believe, and we're going to focus in on some of these distinctions between Israel and the church. As we do so, I want to ask the Lord's blessing again. We're going to be running through the pages of Scripture, old and new. We're going to be uh, moving perhaps more than we have in any given night up to this point, but there's a reason and a purpose as we establish this as a foundation to help our understanding. And So we're going to need the Lord's grace and His help as we do so. Let us ask the Lord's blessing then upon our time together in the Word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the distinctions that are between Israel and the church. We praise you because our very faith, the foundations of our faith, are built upon those truths. Lord, we know that there is a good number of brethren in the church, those who know Christ as Savior, who would have a different idea. We know that after by grace through faith, they have ventured into other areas of theology that would deny the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and your plan for this very important people. Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us grace and understanding as we dig into the truths that will largely be theological tonight, but I pray that also we would understand the practicality of them and the application of how we go about day-to-day living Even in a day and age where we see the hostilities in Israel, we see the UN uh, making statements that are uninformed and ignorant of the truths that are going on on the ground. We see the nations, especially Turkey and others, railing against the nation of Israel. Lord, we know that the people of Israel are not necessarily, the, the people in the land of Israel today are not necessarily those who will be those who inherit the kingdom of God, but we do pray that we would have an understanding heart, that we would not give them a pass in ungodliness, but that like the Apostle Paul, we would have a heart for their salvation. And Lord, then I pray that you would help us to put all of this in the proper framework and guidelines that we would be faithful in the here and now, proclaiming the purposes of the church and the message that the church has to deliver. 
And so, Lord, these are all very important topics that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks. And so I pray that you'd give us understanding hearts, give us hearts willing to listen, to dig in, to let this be a jumping off point for our continued study throughout the weeks to come. And your name would be glorified in all that is said and done here tonight. Lord, speak through me that your people would hear the words that they need to hear, that your spirit would uh, take these prayers and make them effective for our obedience and for our edification in your word and that you alone will be glorified in it. So, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for all these things, and we ask your blessing upon them in the name of Christ. Amen. As we begin to dig into the distinctions between Israel and the church, we must first recognize that the two are not the same. The two are not the same. I've already used the phraseology and the words that would be used, but the church is distinct. How do we know it is distinct? Well, there's phrases throughout the pages of Scripture that allude to and boldly declare the difference between the church and Israel, and we're going to highlight some of those, and there's always context, and that's the danger of having a series like this one in Ecclesia, because it's difficult to get into all of the context. It's difficult for us to camp out in a passage and understand all of the ins and outs of the instruction that is given there, the background, the cultural background, as well as the theological background. And so there is some risk, and so I encourage you to write these passages down. That's part of the reason why I didn't have you write in any blanks tonight, because I would rather you write down the passages that we study, and then dig into those passages as we go along throughout uh, the continued weeks to come, so that you understand what the context of these passages really is. So tonight we're going to begin in the book of Acts, and so turn there. Acts chapter 2, where we have the foundation of the church, the very first days of the church. And I will say this, tonight we will be a little bit more theological. That is because we're going to add the details in the coming weeks. We're going to put in some pieces of how this plays itself out. But I hope that we have some chances throughout the evening to really see this lived out in us. But in light of this, we have to define and carefully cut that we are different than covenantalists, I've already cut that line, but we're also different from ultra-dispensationalists or hyper-dispensationalists. Uh, don't call them that, they're not really appreciative of that. Uh, I, I really, when you talk to them, they just say, well, we're just another dispensational group. And I would say, no, you're not. You're, you are dispensational, and so that is appropriate, but you're not like other dispensational groups. And we have some in our community. We actually have their main school here in the Grand Rapids area. And I've never encountered them anywhere other than here. And, but I've already encountered many of them. We have some of them on our baseball team. And their school, of course, is here and recruiting off of our varsity baseball team, which is a homeschool team. And so I've gotten to know several hyper-dispensationalists quite well. And I call them that to their face because they haven't given me a better moniker yet. <laughs> uh, I haven't gotten a better name yet. And they say, well, don't call us. We're just dispensationalists. I'm like, yeah, but you're different than us. So we're, we're dividing, uh, we're cutting a fine line here. Uh, that fine line we recognize is there's brethren on all sides of this. Ultra dispensationalists believe by grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so we say amen. We're going to disagree on some of the theology. We're going to certainly disagree on baptism. They don't believe in baptism at all for the church, and so that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. They're hyper in certain ways, which is the moniker that is ascribed to them. They're hyper-dispensationalists, so we're going to recognize that there's a line drawn here, but for the purposes of salvation, we agree. 
with covenantalists, not all covenantalists, but many covenantalists who are uh, somewhat closer to us, we would also say that there are brethren on that side, those who know Christ as Savior, for by grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so we call them brethren as well. But we want to be careful because the extremes of both of these sides, there are those who are not believers, who are yet in the church, uh, making noise in the church, writing books, bestsellers, and we have to be careful of those individuals. So we are really cutting fine as we get into Acts chapter 2, and we begin to understand that the church begins on one specific day, not, not the time of Abraham's promises given to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, but rather here in Acts chapter 2, and the scripture begins that we're going to look into verse 37, reading through verse 30, uh, 41. This is the day that the church begins, and the scripture says this, now when they heard this, that is Peter had been preaching, and they had listened, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you for the name of Jesus Christ, or in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church does not begin before when the disciples are huddled together and Christ has ascended. The church begins here in the day on the day of Pentecost. This is the day that the Spirit of God is given to the 3,000 who come to know Christ as Savior in that moment. That is church day one. That's where the church begins. And Peter is clear. There is some clear-cut distinctions already on day one between Israel and the church. One of those clear directions is given for us by uh, Luke as he's writing down this history of the church. When he says this, when we look back into the text, he says in verse 40, uh, rather verse 39, he says, For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is a significant distinction from the nation of Israel. This is the gospel going out to all peoples. And we know that the majority of those who were listening that day were Jewish. We understand that, but not all were. In fact, as we reflect back through church history, we begin to see the church very, very early on springing out into places like Ethiopia, where Philip is taken to the Ethiopian eunuch and the church explodes in Ethiopia. Ultimately, by the time of the end of the apostles, we see the church go to uh, many of the known places in the Roman Empire and beyond. There's strong evidence that Thomas makes it all the way to India and proclaims the gospel in India and the church grows in India. This was a, a place of trade. This was a far off land. This was very far distant, not part of the Roman Empire. And yet the church is growing outside of the Roman Empire among peoples who have never possibly never even heard of Israel, let alone part of the nation of Israel. So there's a distinction that is already drawn here. And throughout the New Testament, there remains a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. And we see one element of this. We're going to 
There's another passage I'll have you write down in a moment, but at the beginning here, in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, the scripture says this, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? There's a a miracle that has been done, Uh, that miracle, the the lame beggar has been, been healed, And in that healing, the people of Israel are looking to Peter and to John and marveling. And Peter says, why are you doing this? Why are you wondering? Why are you staring at this? But did you catch what he called them? The people of Israel. Peter, very early on, draws a very clear-cut distinction between the church and Israel. Not even a chapter later. That is going to be kept. Paul is going to do it later on in Acts chapter 21 verse 19 in the same way or in a similar way where he continues to call the people of Israel the people of Israel and he begins to refer to the church differently. And so this becomes very important for us that we recognize that there is a distinction. There remains a distinction. Israel is not brought into the church as if they were one. They're not one, although Israelites, Jewish people, can be saved and brought into the church. Now we have a clear distinction. We have Israel and we have the church. A turnover, uh, because we say, well, this continues through Acts. What about later on in the New Testament? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and now we move out of the early church is in the book of Acts. We're still in the early church. Now we're in the Corinthian church. And notice what is said here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. When the scripture says this, I'll back up. So uh, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. There's three distinct groups. Did you catch that? The Jews, the Greeks, and the church, three different groups. As he continues on, he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So we have definitely moved, at very least, if you are scholarly and you have studied this, and this is just a a focus of your passion, you say, well, maybe the church is focusing now on a personal basis And the nation of Israel in their rejection of God is moving off into those who have rejected. And so therefore, we're just continuing the spiritual heritage on and not the national heritage. And there could be the point of that up to the passages that we've studied, but we don't see that in the weight of Scripture. The weight of Scripture says that there's a distinction. We certainly have national Israel, but we're going to have national Israel again. By the time we're done this evening, Lord willing, we're going to look into those truths as well. God is not done with the nation of Israel. And right now, he is using the church. They are two different entities. Both the people of God, both have promises that are distinctly and uniquely the individual, whether it be the church or the nation of Israel. Both have promises. Both are related in and through Christ, but we are different. And so we're going to see that continue on and uh, throughout the pages of scriptures we continue to study tonight. One more passage as we understand the distinction here, and we go back then to Matthew's gospel, a very familiar passage and one that we must begin with because Christ begins here. 
and really introduces the theme for the very first time in Matthew 16, verse 18. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, you have uh, Jesus, and we've, used, we've come to this passage before in our study on Ecclesia. You have Jesus speaking to Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Roman Catholicism has tweaked this, and they've said, ah, Peter is the cornerstone. That's not what is happening, and I addressed that early on in our study of Ecclesia. We recognize that there is a play on words. We have Peter, who is the little rock, and Christ referring to the big rock. So there is a play on words here. Christ is saying, Peter, you are the little rock. I'm the big rock, and I'm going to build my church. I'm going to use you, little rock, to do that. But that doesn't mean that Peter is the first pope. It means that the Lord is going to use Peter to open up the doors for ministry, yes. But the Lord is the one who builds his church. So there's a clear distinction that the Lord draws right here. It's the Lord who draws the distinction between Old Testament Israel and the church. This is the first time, really, where the Lord has spoken this. There's been a few important lessons along the way, but the Lord has really moved to this great truth. And it actually starts all the way back in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12. We're not going to study those passages tonight, but when you go back to Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12 and you begin to read the narrative as you come all the way through, you come... Uh, from chapter 1 and the birth of Christ, and you go all the way through those early pages of the book of Matthew, and you have John the Baptist proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. You have all of those lessons. Suddenly you get to Matthew chapter 11, and the message begins to change very, very suddenly. And by the time we get to chapter 12, Jesus is no longer teaching clearly. He's teaching in parables. When he begins to teach into parables, something has changed. The message has changed because Jesus is no longer saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's teaching in parables. And in small settings, he's revealing the context of those parables. And so Jesus himself begins to shift. His message begins to shift. And we begin to see a significant shift. It's an important shift, one that we'll study later on if you're in my systematic theology class coming up. Uh, and not this next, it'll actually be next year before we get to this. But in that class, we're going to dig into this a little bit. And so the idea is the message has changed. The message has changed from Israel now to the church, who was the mystery of the Old Testament. And then that message becomes clear by the time we get to Matthew 16, that Christ is going to do something different with his people, with a different group of people the Gentiles, and he's going to use Peter to do it. So there's the distinctions. Now we're going to have to build off of that. There's a lot for us to build off of this structure, but let's first go to the nation of Israel and tidy up some of what we've been discussing. The question then becomes, and I've just alluded to it, kind of built up to it, if Jesus changes his message in Matthew chapter 12 and as he changes that message, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 16, the Lord is saying, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we have this shift. If, if we have that shift, the question is, is God done with Israel? 
Have they finally sinned enough that God is like, I have had it with you. You have been rebellious. You have been adulterous. You've been idolatrous. You have broken every commandment as many times as you possibly could. You have wandered from, away from my truth. You have wandered. I've, I've judged you. You've repented only to wander away again. Over and over and over, I finally had it with you. Has God said that? Your answer to that question will mean the difference between covenantalists and dispensationalists. It's just almost that clean cut. If you say, yes, God is done with Israel, then from that point on, you must do hermeneutical gymnastics through the rest of the pages of Scripture. You cannot let Scripture speak literally for itself. If you say, no, God is not done, then we have some wrestling to do. Let's go over to Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 first. Romans chapter 8. And we have significant and wonderful theology. We go from chapter 1 in the book of Romans where uh, we see those, uh, we have the wonderful statements of the power of the gospel. Uh, we have the sinful unbelievers in chapter 2. We have the sinful religious. It's as if Paul is writing to the believer or to the unbelievers and saying, if you are pagan, you are lost. If you are religious practicing zealots who is Jewish or any other religious system, you are lost too. And then he goes into chapter 3 and says the very clear passages that we've memorized and we've applied, the wonderful statements of both grace and sin, that you were sinners, lost and depraved. And by the love of Christ, you can be redeemed. And so these very important passages, chapters 3 through 5, reminding us of the process of justification. Sinners justified become those who are sanctified in 5, 6, and 7, and 5 and 6, and then in 7 and 8, glorified. And so all of these wonderful, profound, theological depth and truth, and chapter 8 of the book of Romans ends this way, as the, book, or as the chapter draws to a close, and he says, No, verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we would shout a hearty amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But what about Israel? What about Israel? This grand crescendo of all of this theology that has been built for eight full chapters and the there's a rhetorical question that begins, a rhetorical questioner that begins to ask, if all of this is true, was it not also true for Israel? The nation of Israel, all of these promises that God had made to them, is not God faithful to those, or is God going to remain faithful to those, or has he sidetracked them to the point of no return? If he sidetracked them to the point of no return, you cannot say amen at the end of chapter 8. Because there's no hope at the end of chapter 8. Because God is found unfaithful to his promises. But if 
you say God's not done with Israel. Then you say a hearty amen at the end of chapter 8. And you move on into chapter 9 and you wrestle with the hard element of God sidetracking the nation of Israel and putting on the church in its place, largely made up of Gentiles. And you see Paul warring with this. He begins chapter 9 by saying, if I could give up my own salvation, I would do it. For the sake of Israel, that they may believe. Can you imagine Paul? Paul understood what he was saying. He was not saying it flippantly. He understood he wasn't going to give up his salvation for them, but he also understood what it was going to cost and that the nation of Israel was going to continue to rebel and reject despite all that Paul desired of them. So as Paul draws a clear distinction between the church and Israel, he does certainly draw that distinction, but he then promises that God is not done yet with Israel. Notice what he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul just gave you the greatest distinction between Israel and the church in those five verses. And he told us something very important. To the nation of Israel belongs all the covenants, the promises, the blessings, the patriarchs. They're still Israel's. They're still Israel's. You can't get much more clear than that. Those are passionate, bold statements. Israel does not lose these that belong only to them. Israel does not lose the covenants, the promises of the patriarchs. So that reveals a couple things to us. One, Paul clearly has drawn a distinction. He's saying they're not of the church. He says, I wish they were, but they're not. Paul draws a clear distinction between Israel and the church. He's going to continue to do so in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this is that great section. I think I've referred to it before in this setting. This is that great section that's often neglected, even in dispensational circles, that I have passionately called Israelology. This is the study of Israel right here. And Paul is going to lay out a magnificent piece of understanding for us as he does so. He reminds us that not only is there a distinction between Israel and the church, but Israel is still the holder of the promises, the covenants, and the patriarchs. They're still there. So God has not derailed them to the point of oblivion. And that is why we have the problems we have in the Middle East today. Satan knows that God's not done with Israel. Satan knows that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, and he's doing everything possible and imaginable to destroy them. And some of the news, the details that are coming out of these latest atrocities against the nation of Israel are grotesque and heinous in every way. If you read the reports, you cannot believe that the barbaric tendencies and actions that were committed against specifically Israeli young women. And yet... 
the world turns a blind eye and blames Israel for the defense of itself. Beloved, we must understand that what is going on in the Middle East today will not be resolved in its entirety until Christ resolves it. And that's why we're going to talk about the future in our subsequent lessons or subsequent time in Ecclesia, because there's more for us as a church to do should the Lord tarry. Uh, if he doesn't, then we won't reconvene. <laughs> if he comes back and takes us to himself, we'll say amen, and the rest of history can unfold for us. Uh, but if he does, we have more work to do. If he does tarry, we have more work to do. So we must understand that Paul himself in the New Testament draws a distinction between Israel and the church. By the way, chapter 9 I, I don't know if we will return. Yeah, we will return here later towards the end of the chapter here this evening. But I encourage you to spend considerable time in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's kind of difficult. It's kind of hard to wade through some of that. But don't be daunted by it. Study it faithfully. This is a great text of Scripture. Don't neglect it. The church has tended to neglect it, I think, largely because of the battle that wages between covenantalism and dispensationalism throughout the ages don't neglect it. This is a very important text. But before we get into the rest of this, uh, deeper into this, I want to understand Israel's covenants because Paul has brought them up. So we're going to take that rabbit trail for just a moment. Israel's covenants. There are a number of important covenants that the Lord gave to Israel through Abraham. And you're going to see these divided. Covenantalists are not referring to these covenants. They're referring to other covenants that are extra biblical, actually, that don't really show up in the pages of Scripture. And to be fair, there's a lot of titles for dispensationalism that don't show up in the pages of Scripture either. So I'm not calling them out for that. I'm just saying that what covenantalists view as covenants is not what we're about to study, not what Scripture calls covenants. So what we're about to study, Scripture calls covenants, and they all focus on the covenant that is given to Abraham. That covenant is in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17 as we see it unfold more and more. Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back there. We're going to spend some time now in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to come back to Romans, so don't totally lose uh, that book. But Genesis chapter 12. There's some fascinating things that began to take place here, but we don't have time this evening to get into all of them. I just want you to hear the promise that is made, because from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following, 1 through 3, we really get the idea of what God is going to do in the expansion of this covenant in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the initial promise. Abraham, leave Haran, go from Haran, which we say that God called Abraham out of Ur. That's what's interesting. Go back sometime later and read who God called out of Ur. God did call out of Ur, but Abraham was not the one. Abraham was called out of Haran, ultimately leading back to Ur, but he was called out of Haran, and he comes to the land of promise and the Lord has specific and clear instructions for him. Go to a land I will show you, and I will bless you there. That's Genesis 12. Now move over to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is gone. He's settled in. He's uh, beginning to uh, de develop and be blessed by the Lord. 
Uh, also, we talked about Melchizedek some time back. Uh, Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek in, in Genesis chapter 14 as he goes and pays tithes and offerings to Melchizedek. So we come into Genesis 15, and the scripture here says this, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vi- or Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so uh, the Lord begins to explain to him that he's going to have a child and that that child uh, will be the one that God is going to build out into many nations and many peoples. At the end of chapter 15, or towards the middle portion of chapter 15, uh, Abraham or Abram is told to separate the, the animals and to prepare them for a covenant arrangement. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant because Abraham and the Lord did not walk through the pieces. The idea of separating the animals as Abraham was instructed to split the animals and pull them apart to leave a path for there to be a walkway, the idea of the ancient culture in which Abraham was a part of is that any agreements, covenantal or contractual agreement, would be signed in this way. And if you were a violator of the covenant, then may it be done to you what was done to the animals. May you be rent in two. That was the idea. Contracts were binding. You didn't default on a covenant, because if you did, you were ripped in half. That was the concept, the idea. But the Lord, as we look through the passage of Genesis chapter 15, the Lord causes Abram to go to sleep. In fact, we notice this in verse 12 of chapter 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs.'" and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And all of that skipping down. Then uh, verse 17, When the sun had gone down, for it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And verse 18, On that day the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river, and he begins to describe the boundaries of the promised land. Why is that important? Did you notice who didn't walk through the pieces of the goats that had been separated? Abraham did not walk through the pieces, but the Lord did. It was as if the Lord was saying, may it be done to me if I do not uphold my promises as it has been done to these animals. That is an impossibility. The covenant is an unconditional covenant. God himself walks through the covenant and promises to Abraham all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, which include, as we summarize these, you may hear in theological circles and around, the land, the seed, and the blessing. Those would be expanded out into other uh, covenants. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the boundaries of the land are again given to the nation of Israel. And this is as Moses is preparing, this Deuteronomy being Deutero, second giving of the law. And so second giving of the law, moving into the land, as they're about to go into the land, the Lord reminds Israel of their boundaries and promises again. The Palestinian covenant, as it is called, or the land covenant, is developed in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It is off of the Abrahamic covenant because God had already promised it in the Abrahamic covenant. Then you also have the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, where there would be an heir on the throne of David forever. 
That promise is fulfilled in Christ who has yet to ascend on the literal throne of David. But there is clear instructions as we let Scripture speak for itself that there will one day be a throne of David and Christ will sit on it. And then, and that is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it is reiterated again, spoken again to David. And then you have a people. Lord, the Lord is going to prepare for himself a people. And those people will be the nation of Israel, Jeremiah chapter 31. By the way, that covenant is also spelled out. And we know that this covenant isn't fulfilled. We may or may not have time tonight to get all the way there through the new covenant. But we recognize that the blood of Christ ratifies, promises that covenant. And that blood of Christ ratifying that covenant, whether you disagree or agree that we have a part in the body of Christ in that covenant or not, we recognize that that is a covenant for the nation of Israel. And how do we know that? I still exist. Jeremiah chapter 31 says that the law will be written on their hearts and they will have no need of anyone to explain it to them. We still have me. <laughs> this is a, we're not involved in that. Isaiah chapter 11 says that the lion will lay with the lamb. The child will play with the cobra. Uh, we're not doing that, in case you haven't noticed. That's not a good idea. <laughs> uh, we're not there yet. So we're not fulfilling the new covenant. While we may have elements of its blessing, we are not fulfilling it today. So we understand that these are this way, but I want you to catch something. We, we see the eternality of this covenant. We see the, the generation to generation element of this covenant. But turn over to Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. This is the third time that the Lord has given the covenant to Abraham. Three times. Abraham is kind of dense, evidently. <laughs> God reiterates it to him. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that sarcastically, understand. I think we're all this way. We need it multiple times. And God has given it to Abraham three times. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, notice what the Lord says of the covenant. It says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. So going all the way back to Romans chapter 9, as we venture back to Romans chapter 9, let me ask you the question, at the end of chapter 8, with this grand crescendo of nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, what about Israel? If God cannot fulfill his word to the nation of Israel, he cannot fulfill his word to you. He promised to Abraham an everlasting covenant from generation to generation. That requires, it requires that there be a land made available, a literal land with literal borders, which he's already delineated in Genesis chapter 15. It requires there be people of Abraham. Abraham tried to thwart that, and because he tried to thwart that, you have the people of the Arabs today. Ishmaelites. Because, can you imagine history if Abraham just simply would have listened to the Lord. What we're having today wouldn't be happening. You wouldn't have the Ishmaelites rising up against those of Isaac, the Israelites. You wouldn't have this constant conflict. It's all because Abraham refused to listen to the Lord. Does sin have consequences? That's a side, a side lesson for us. Does sin have consequences? Oh, you better believe it, and the people of Israel today are paying for Abraham's sin. When we begin to understand then that God has delineated a distinct place with distinct borders, 
and a distinct people, the people of Israel, with a distinct king who is Christ. We begin to ask the question, is God done with Israel? And the answer is no. You don't hear of Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Perizzites, but you hear of Israelites because God's not done with them yet. God has a purpose and a plan for them, and he spelled it out in his covenants to them. This is the impact of the promises. At the end of Romans chapter 8, this grand crescendo, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The authority of that statement being made is authority that you and I rest in in our own salvation. It affects your day-to-day living. Are you saved or are you not saved? Can God do what he said he's going to do or can he not? Your salvation rests on that. And the fact that the nation of Israel, that Israelites still exist today, remind us that God is faithful to his word. But let's go back to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. Romans chapter 9 and just listen uh, to this. And I'm I'm probably going to wind up here. Uh, We've got two more points to go, but I wanted to save these if we needed to uh, for the weeks to come. Romans chapter 9, I want us to to just spend just a few moments here and listen to this. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 30. We're going to read into chapter 10, verse 4. The scripture says this, what shall we say then? That is, what, what do we say about this question? What do we say about this question of, is God done with Israel? Because if he's done with Israel, my faith has no grounding. So what do we say about this? Paul goes on, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, and I have a zeal for God, but not, or that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says that the Israelites... The Jews have refused to avoid the stumbling block. The stumbling block is Christ. They have refused to accept Christ. They have refused to allow the stumbling block to be removed and understanding that righteousness is by faith, not by works. And so, like we have seen in the church today, many who have wandered away and they've tried to do their own works, they stumbling over the stumbling block that salvation does not come by works. The Jews were stumbling over the same stumbling block. Righteousness does not come by works. So Paul is asking the question, how is it that Gentiles can now be bought by the blood of Christ? And will Israel be bought by the blood of Christ? And the answer is, eventually Israel will be. Today, Gentiles primarily are being bought by the blood of Christ. 
accepting that free gift of salvation and making it their own. Not by works, but by faith. It is fascinating as we continue to study, and we will get into this, but one of the key questions that I have is, why is this all important? Why is it important to understand the distinction between the church and Israel? Well, there's some very practical reasons. It keeps us from crusades. When you think back through the Middle Ages and the crusades that the church, um, the universal church, some of those being Roman Catholic, some of those not necessarily being Roman Catholic, committed terrible atrocities against the people of God that God is still planning to use. It should change the way we view the nation of Israel when we understand that God is not yet done with the nation of Israel, and neither should we be. It should drive missions to a people who Paul cried out to the Lord for their salvation. It should drive us to an understanding of that great truth. But above all of that, it should remind us of the great promises that have been made to us. If you believe in Christ alone for your salvation... You are assured of your salvation. You're not working for it. You're not trying to earn it. You're not trying to maintain it. Because if Israel could lose it, they would have. If Israel could have wandered away so greatly into separation from God that God finally said, you know what, I've had it. The nation of Israel would have done it. But God is faithful to his promises. And so we return to where we were this morning in Psalm 100. God is faithful to his promises. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Beloved, as you celebrate with your families and your friends the Thanksgiving season, may it be that which is consumed with the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the person of the Father, and the person of the Spirit of God. May your celebrations be focused on who has provided all of these blessings to you. Because if he was not faithful, if he did not exercise a steadfast love, you would have wandered away as well. You would not be the sheep of his pasture. But beloved, the great truth is, as we see the distinction between Israel and the church, we know there's a distinction, but we know that God is not done with the nation of Israel yet. There's more to come. And I can't wait for all that to unfold. And I've said, someone asked me a while back about what we're going to be watching in eternity and, or building up through the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom. We're going to get to some of that and the church's relationship to the millennial kingdom coming up in the weeks to come. Uh, but one of the great things that I imagine is going to take place in heaven is you're not going to worry about the tribulation. All these things that I want to see about the tribulation and entering into the kingdom, we know we're going to be there because we're going to ride in with the Lord. And so we're going we're gonna to be there. What a glorious day that will be. But I don't even know if we're going to pay any attention when we get there. We're going to be so enamored with the person who is Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm not sure we're going to pay much attention to anything else. Uh, I long for that day. Uh, look longingly for the return of Christ to take the church with him. We are just a, a speck in eternity. 
at this point 2,000 years old and maybe no more before Christ will take his bride to be with him in the air. And so we're going to cut this sermon in half. There's another whole section for us to go, a lot more for us. We're going to get into next time, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to get into the church and the new covenant. Uh, we're not going to get in very deep or we could be here for months. Uh, this is this is a great study. There's great books that have been written on this subject. And if you say, I want to dig deeper, I'll give you a whole library worth of books to go check out, to read on the subject of the church and the new covenant. A lot of good stuff is being written today on these issues. I don't have time to keep up with it all. So if you are a prolific reader and you love to read deep theological things, I've got a couple of good books for you. Um, the other issue that we're going to deal with is the church and the kingdom. We're going to spend some time here. We could spend months here as well. There is such great confusion on the church and the kingdom, and we're going to clarify some of that. We're going to let Scripture do the speaking as we get into that, uh, Lord willing, next week. But there's such a great week ahead for us. Time to spend on Wednesday night here. Don't neglect being here. Uh, sharing the testimonies of the goodness of God uh, to you. Make sure that you're here to publicly do that. And then... Uh, time with your family, friends uh, on Thursday, spending an opportunity to slow down, stop what you're doing, and celebrate the goodness of God. Uh, make sure you take advantage of those things as well. But tonight, let us close in a word of prayer. Our gracious, gracious Heavenly Father, we have uh, just studied two elements of four tonight as we want to understand the distinction between the church and Israel. Lord, I praise you that the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. There's clarity if we let Scripture just speak for itself, that we would remove our own pride and our own arrogance and truly understand that you still have promises that will be literally fulfilled for the nation of Israel. Lord, we recognize that there are those who are well-meaning believers who know Christ as Savior, who have just, just really gotten... Uh, entangled in trying to figure it out through a lens that is something less than the literal interpretation of Scripture. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would not be uh, those who are captivated by divisions and by those things that would necessitate our own self-promotion, but instead that we would let Scripture speak for itself. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted of those areas where we may be failing to do so and that they too would be that there would be a faithfulness, uh, no time wasted, no energies wasted on worthless tasks, that we'd be good stewards of this age to proclaim the excellencies of the one who purchased us, that we would be a faithful bride of Christ and longing for the day when you will do what you've promised to do for the nation of Israel. Lord, we praise you for this very special people, and tonight they... Uh, while they are not necessarily the people of promise uh, that are there in the land today, we know that uh, perhaps uh, they are, and that those to follow them will be. And so we pray your preservation and your protection. We pray for salvation to reach this people who is so desperate in their own works and religious systems. Like Paul, we cry out that they would be redeemed that they would finally have the blinders taken off and understand the work of the Spirit of God and that they would come to know Christ as their Savior instead of the rejection of the Messiah. 
So, Lord, our heart cries out for this land and for these people. We pray that you would preserve them tonight in the war-torn country that they are, that your name would be glorified in all of these things, and that in the future we would look back with great zeal, great earnestness, and great joy at the work that you have accomplished here today. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this week ahead, this opportunity to give you thanks. I pray that we'd be found faithful and obedient in doing so, that we'd be dismissed in your grace and your love tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.